When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network, and I'm your host, Mark. Scott Crow. Wow. This episode goes everywhere. Music is just one part of the wild story that is the life of Scott Crow. It began growing up as the son of George Jones's drummer. He grew up around the insanity that was Dee Doodle and Tammy Wynette. So, to rebel, Scott got into heavy metal and started playing in bands at the age of 12. All of this changed when he discovered Mark Stewart and the Mafia, though. Suddenly, he was obsessed with electronic and experimental music. After his industrial band Lesson 7 gained traction touring with the biggest names in the genre, Scott walked away from everything and went into antiques. That could be the end of the story, but it's not. Not even close. As Scott gets deeper into activism, he sold his antiques business, started the Common Ground Collective, and was listed as a domestic terrorist. During that time, he wrote some books and toured doing speaking engagements, and he tells me how that actually got him back into music. But he discovered a completely different approach to writing songs, cannibalizing all kinds of work to create something new. Check out emergencyhearts.com to learn about the almost endless stream of projects Scott's working on, and to get all the social media links for everything. There's some really exciting stuff out there with some stellar artists that you'll definitely recognize. Follow us at Performance ANX on social media, and you can support us on ko-fi.com slash performance anxiety with a cup of coffee or performanceanx.threadless.com for merch. Now buckle the F up for a wild ride with Scott Crow on Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hey, this is Scott Crow. Take two. This is Scott Crow, the dirty anarchist from uh, uh, fuck it, shit. Take three. <laughs> Scott Crow, the dirt. Hey, this is Scott Crow on the Performance Anxiety with Mark Shea. Uh, remember me? I'm the dirty anarchist from uh, Austin, Texas. Uh, run emergencyhearts.com uh, in Austin and uh, part of Lesson Seven, Audio Assault, and Corporate Uncle. And uh, fuck it, just a stick in the mud rather than that. Uh, enjoy uh, Performance Anxiety as we have. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Put some music and some swooshes behind it and stuff. <laughs> okay. Is that good enough? Is I gonna is I gonna do it? Okay. <laughs>
Look at it. We made it. We did it. We're doing this. (laughs) (laughs) Shit, man. So sorry it's taking so long. No, man. No worries. You can't really, uh, you know, predict what, you know, losing power and having a ridiculous ice storm and exactly so no worries man no worries at all thank you thank you thank you thank you oh gosh my pleasure my pleasure let me close this door real quick i would close this door. hang on you guys coming yeah. in my damn my damn dogs they, uh, want, in. they want to go out <laughs> so, uh, mine are upstairs locked I'm in a room choose. right now oh good on them <laughs> fan of, so you don't have to hear it Jeez, oh, no man. worries man no worries thanks for taking the time to do this man i really appreciate it oh gosh it's my pleasure it's my pleasure uh, and can we cuss on this show absolutely oh fuck yeah because yeah. i probably will by accident <laughs> no worries man no worries i know you've got uh, a new release coming up but you know there's a whole history before that that's true. I actually have five albums out this year. <laughs> Just know that. So I, we don't. I don't fucking care about talking about the. I really want to talk about other shit and the label. Like, so if you don't talk about the songs, I don't give a fuck. Okay. Like, if you want to talk about other shit, like rock and roll stories and stuff like that, I'm good with that. So that's that's awesome. I mean, terrorism, <laughs> anarchy, you know, like the whole fucking. <laughs> anyway, we can make it interesting. Oh, it'll definitely be interesting. I'm I'm already getting that vibe. So this will be great. The way I normally start this whole thing is to find out how you got into music in the first place. I mean, so is it something that that uh, you grew up with or was it something you found on your own? Was there a lot of music in the house growing up? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All of those things. Nice, nice. So, so uh, uh, I, I grew up in minor country music royalty. My dad was the drummer for George Jones and Tammy Wynette for about 25 years. Wow. So I grew up like all the, all the time, like George and Tammy, I thought were in my family and their, and their kids because I saw them all the time. And, and there was a touring, like all the touring guys with them and stuff. So that's how I actually grew up was like, I grew up in a lot of country music. I'm a working class kid from a rural town that became a suburb much later after I was gone. You know, I watched, uh, I watched the farm town turn into suburbs with, you know, like, like, Oh, they tore down the farm. Yep was the way of storytelling that I grew up in. And then from that, you know, my, so understand my dad was an asshole. He was a drug addict and an alcoholic and he was mean. Wow. So, oh. so it wasn't like, it was like hunky door. And he was like, Hey man, let's, let's show you how to do this stuff. But he was, I was like, I want to be a drummer when I was like nine or 10 or something. And he gave me one of his early drum kits, which was cool as hell to do. It was an old uh, Ludwig Pearl, Pearl Snap set that was like beautiful, but it was beat up and stuff. And it was his like second kit or whatever, okay. but he gave it to me and then proceeded to show me how to use it and was such an asshole about it. It, it went awry quickly. Oh, no. So it's a, I mean, it's fine. It's fine. It's just, it's just stories, you know? Uh, and then he went to prison for 20 years. So, uh, and I had nothing to do with him in his life. He's his own country song. He's dead now. Uh, but, but, but has affected me so much, but that's my introduction to that. And so I grew up meeting people like Ronnie Millsap, the Statler brothers, Johnny Cash and, uh, Dolly Parton and Porter Wagner. I mean, that list goes on and on because I saw them at all these festivals because they weren't very famous. They were famous in these country worlds, but they weren't famous you know, they weren't big. Johnny Cash was probably one of the biggest ones or whatever. But so I saw these people a lot. And, uh, so, and then after that, it was just like, for me, it was, it was really like, 
I want to play drums. I want to be better than my dad. Fuck that motherfucker. Right. That's what I said. And so, uh, so I started, I joined a bunch of uh, cover metal bands and stuff. And I discovered rock and roll when I was about 10 or 11. And I want to thank my mom too. I like, you know, like you can tell the shithole dad story a lot. Right. But like, that's a, that's a common trope. Right. But my mom was fucking awesome, man. She was great. Oh, she even, like started taking me to concerts when I was really young, because she was like trying to break out of the country mold, because we're all like rednecks from Texas. You got to understand this, right? Okay. Like, probably like, unlike most of the people that you fucking meet, like, <laughs> we're totally <laughs> rednecks from Texas, man. <laughs> and so, so she was like, I want to break out of this. And so, so like, she was taking me to concerts like in the 70s, like Neil Diamond and John Denver. And, oh, wow. and I saw the village people in 77 with Gloria Gaynor and all oh, these people like, that, like I loved them. I wanted to see the village people. And then I saw kiss in 77 and my, I was like, Oh my God. Wow. Rock and, roll. <laughs> and, so, and then I saw them again in 79 and I saw the cars. And so anyway, so a lot of that stuff. And so by the time I was about 12 or 13, I wasn't a prodigy, but I just started playing in bands. Okay. They were shitty bands and they were cover bands, but I started doing that. And so, and that was kind of my discovery of music and moving from country to rock and roll and and then trying to figure things out you know if that's, okay. that, that kind of gets to work you know we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Before you skip over this ad, give me one minute. Like most podcasts, I pick sponsors carefully and I use the products that advertise here. Pure Spectrum CBD is a product that has been really beneficial for me. They have a wide variety of great products that can be used on a daily or as needed basis. I've been using the tincture every day and it's been wonderful for easing anxiety. And I absolutely love the isolate. I use it instead of acetaminophen or ibuprofen. And it's worked so well for the relief of aches and pains. They also have soaks, lotions, salves, gummies, and more. Plus, an entire line for fitness recovery. They even have products for your pets. See everything they offer at PureSpectrumCBD.com. And if you have questions, they're there to help. 
They helped me when I had no idea where to start. After you fill your cart, use code PERFORMANCEANX for 15% off your purchase. Pure Spectrum CBD, Pure Spectrum CBD, Pure Spectrum CBD. So the, the first question I got to ask you about all of this is, have you listened to Cocaine and Rhinestones at all? Fuck yeah! All right. Are you fucking kidding me? So, oh my god! So is it is it accurate? Nobody is it, listened to it. Lived it as a child. <laughs> is it is he is Tyler on? Is he spot on with that? I think so in a lot of ways, okay. actually. You know, it's super funny that you bring that up at all. <laughs> I Way love that podcast. Way to dig deep. <laughs> yeah. I, oh, and no, I, I think so too. And also, um, what was it that uh, the, the guy who did King of the Hill also did a, a little series about road trip uh, stories or something? He did the first season he did was country. It was Judd Hill. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm Mike, sorry. Mike King Judge. of the Hill. Mike Judd. Thank you. Yeah. He's from Texas too. So yep. he fucking gets it. So he did the first season was all country. I'm like, oh, I recognize those stories. But those guys who were telling the stories, I'm like, those guys came way after those stories were happening. I remember when George Jones was that drunk. What? I remember when he would look at me as a child and go, because I, 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 I can't speak. <laughs> <laughs> Too many drugs. <laughs> and people are walking him on stage. Oh, God. I mean, it was kind of traumatizing as a child, but it's great stories now. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can only imagine what you got to be, what's going to be going through your mind as a kid. I mean, I remember T- Tammy Wynette like having a birthday party at their house in Florida, which was like a mansion. It was like colonial columns and like all this super white trash shit that I see now. But at the time I was like, oh my God, this is fancy. Yeah. And they had a pool and stuff. And then the stage in their back, they were on acres. I mean, I ain't got a kid. They were on acres. And, you know, they were doing a concert, like my dad and all the people. And Porter Wagner drugged me up on the stage to sit next to him while he played the piano and stuff. And wow. I did that, you know, because I'd seen him on TV. I was like, Porter Wagner! <laughs> you know, it's just goofy yeah. shit like that. <laughs> Ballad of 40 oh bucks. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I love that song. <laughs> so so you, you kind of, all right, so you, you end up moving away from country music due in a large part to your mom. So, so was metal and and heavier music just kind of was that a rebellious thing or was it something that was that actually drew you besides just screw dad I got I'm gonna no it totally drew me I mean like it was like the Who and Zeppelin okay. and the Stones and like all the classic rock stuff yeah. and I joined my first band at like twelve thirteen wow. and most of those guys I was twelve and those guys were like probably seventeen was the youngest guy and the rednecks you know the singer was like twenty five I was a young guy. <laughs> Again, I ain't going to pretend I was a prodigy, but I was a drummer. And they were like, hey, it's a drummer. He's alive. Let's get it. <laughs> so we practiced in a stu- in his garage for years doing Airport Freeway. Just know that's the band. Oh, and, nice. You know, we're doing, we're doing like Thin Lizzy and Judas Priest and Scorpions and stuff. But I'm like learning my chops and learning how to work with people and stuff. And we you know the band never went anywhere. And then I went to, you know, like I had a succession of bands like that. But I joined metal because... Like in Texas, like at that time, so you're talking about like 80 to like 82 or three or four, okay. like metal was big. It wasn't even hair metal yet. That was starting to come up, but it was like, it was still like Black Sabbath and Ozzy. I saw Ozzy four times. I've seen him with four different guitarists. Oh man. I saw Randy Rhodes. I saw Jakey Lee. I saw, oh. you know, like I've seen them all. Wow. Like, and I wasn't like a fanboy. I just saw him because that's what I did. And so like, you have to understand too, between, between the ages of eight and about 
17. I went to 200 rock concerts, man. I saw Van Halen four times. I saw Ted, you know, the shitty bands like Ted Nugent, Styx, Journey, all the bands. <laughs> so I learned a lot. Billy Squire, Queen. Like I saw all of them. Wow. And I was like, this is the good thing I want to take. This is the bad thing. Don't do this. So I'm learning all along the way. Yeah, so, yeah. It was so, almost like school anyway, for I don't know. If it, it was. And, you know, and I finally left metal bands in 85. I started to do electronic because I'd already been into a, an, into a new wave by that time, even though I was still listening to metal. I mean, again, like we didn't like go like, you, well, you can only listen to new wave. I was considered a fag. You know, in, in Texas, for right. sure, I got thrown in the dump and the trash can for like a new way. But I started going to clubs at 15. I was like, holy shit. Wow. My head exploded. And the kids in high school still didn't understand that stuff. They were still like, metal concerts, metal concerts, rock concerts. I'm like, no, man, this whole thing called clubs. It's so, cool. There's so many bands. You don't even know who they are. <laughs> so what what drew you into the electronic music and pulled you a little bit, of, you know, started to pull you away from metal? Was there a band or, or was is it something else? Well, there's a couple of things. That, so there's a couple of things that like, and, and I can say this in retrospect, I couldn't tell you it then, but like I started going to clubs. I had a fake ID. Drinking age was only 18 then. So like it was easier to like if a 15 year old showed up with a shitty fake ID, it was easier to get in. Right. And I was a cool kid. And so like, they're, like I was that weird outsider in high school, but there they're like, yes, you're a regular. Come on yes. in. <laughs> so, so, but something happened in Texas though. There was like, there's a couple of really good, a few really good record stores in Dallas. There's two or three of them that were Record Gallery, VVV Records, and Bill's Records that were really strongholds. And the clubs became centers for, uh, you know, the, the Stark Club opened. Philippe Stark designed a club in 1985, which was his first club to ever do. And you're like, who the fuck is that? He's a huge designer, <laughs> huge designer. Like, every, like, toilet paper and fucking pins and buildings okay. and all kinds. Of, he's an architect, but he did a club in 1985 that was cool as shit. And it was co-owned by Grace Jones and Stevie Nicks. I didn't know this stuff, but right. I'd go there and I saw Grace Jones perform. Like, oh, I was like, whoa. my hands exploded. I'm not saying that she was the most influential thing, but I'm just saying like, I was being exposed to this kind of stuff. And then something weird happened that Texas became a pipeline for all this industrial and experimental music coming out of Wax Tracks Records out of Chicago, Network Records out of Canada, right. Played Against Sam Records out of Belgium, and a few other labels. And so all like for some reason, they like a lot of bands would come from Europe, play in a couple, the East Coast, West Coast, and they'd play Chicago and Texas. And so all oh, wow. of a sudden, I started to see all these bands. Like, again, I'm, I, I don't understand that this is happening, but this is starting to influence me in, in all this way. And this, this uh, place called Record Gallery, I began to meet people. And the guy who ran the Record Gallery, Steve Stokes, uh, he's passed on now to the ancestors, but he was a great person. He was very much into experimental music, and he was at the forefront of doing this stuff. Okay. And so it became a little hub of places for weirdos to get together and, like, huff ether and drink at underage and <laughs> listen to music you know like at a cool at a cool upstairs you know at an upstairs record store okay and he had a lot of shows i did my first shows there my first experimental shows but the two bands and this is to the question not to two records from them in 1984 at record gallery that blew my mind because i didn't even understand what the records were it was vinyl records but they were in these covers you're like what the is this thing? Right. Who are these people? We had we had a little bit of a glitch there. Who was it? Because it, it, it you, you froze it's for a second. Soviet France. Ah. Soviet France. Okay. Yeah, and they had two records that came out, and they were like 
probably limited edition. They had handmade the covers, hand printed. One was covered in like asphalt and stuff, and one was covered in like rubber with all these crazy inserts. I mean, this is like shit just so outside of the thing wow. of, of anything that you're doing. And so that really inspired me. And they were doing ambient noise. And so actually, when I left metal, that in 1985, I went to uh, I studied at North Texas University for less than a year, but I was there and I got exposed to a lot of experimental music more and jazz because it's a big jazz school. Oh, okay. And so Soviet France, it just had a lot more meaning to me, a lot more weight. And so I, I did a, I, while I was there, I did this crazy experimental record at, under the name Corporate Uncle uh, with this friend of mine, Rob Foreman, at the time. Okay. And so that, I'm talking about noise, like just total noise. Like I literally failed out of college within about eight months because I wasn't even going to class. I was just going to the experimental classes, a uh, few <laughs> philosophy classes, taking acid and, and smoking a lot of weed. I was like, holy shit, this is all I need, which is why I failed out. Just so people that kids don't do this at home. Right. You know? so, <laughs> so, so I was like, I wanted to be a rock star. And so I left. And then I started working at a record store in 1985 also. Like about the end of 85, I started working at a record store, 86. And I discovered Mark Stewart and Mafia there. And Mark Stewart was legendary. But even then, to that point, I didn't even know who he was yet. Like, so this is the first exposure to me. Again, remember, I'm a redneck in a small town working in a record store trying to figure shit out. So yeah. we're getting these import CDs and stuff. And I, I, I found this Mark Stewart cassette and my head exploded because it was... It was Markster Mafia, which just to give context, Mafia was Tackhead. You know, it's Doug Wimbush, Keith yes. LeBlanc, and uh, Skip. I forgot, totally forgetting Skip's last name. I feel like an asshole. Sorry, Skip. Uh, so anyway, and they, <laughs> they were the Sugar Hill Gang, which I'd grown up on hip-hop also from 1980 and listened to the Sugar Hill Gang, The Message, and, and uh, all these songs that they were playing on it. So it was the same guys. I didn't know this at the time, but that record just showed me that you could you could mash up anything, sounds and dub and electronic, and you could cut the detrius of the media at the time and start to make new things out of it. And, and again, I know this sounds like I'm making it sound bigger than it is, but it's just evolutionary steps for a fucking teenager in, in Texas, you know? Yeah. And that just kind of started leading me down the path. And Revolting Cox came out in 86, and then Ministry Twitch came out in 86. Yep. And, and so those records started to influence me, and Floodland came out in 86 or 87. And so these records started to influence me. Clan of Zymox had come out. And so all these dark wave and industrial bands. And I had been exposed to punk rock a lot between about 83 and 85. I'd gone to sh many shows, but it never... The anti-authoritarian nature of it never spoke to me as much. Like I didn't feel that anger and the angst and stuff. I, I danced and I, I you know, and, and did all the things, but it was like I didn't feel. But industrial, fucking, I felt like I came home. Okay. It was sound collage. It was just fucking. It was just. It was so much there. It's amazing what what how different music will have the same effect on so many different people. You know, it's it's amazing because I was getting that with metal back in the 90s mm -hmm. or in the 80s and then grunge in the 90s right 
And I did to degrees. I think metal definitely had this anti-authoritarian edge, even as it mainstreamed back in the 70s to the 80s. I felt that about a lot of bands, you know, like Metallica was fucking super forward at the time. Slayer was super forward at the time. I mean, that's an Iron Maiden for me. I remember when metal guys hated them, you know? yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so it's funny because and, even like the uh, th- this past weekend, uh, we're driving around, me and my wife and, and one of my kids and all, and an Iron Maiden song comes on and it brought me right back to that feeling. And it was insane. And I'm like, I remember. Yeah. It was just crazy. Oh, and I looked up, it's uh, Skip McDonald. Skip McDonald. Thank you so much. Skip McDonald was Sugar Hill Gang and then part of Tackhead. So, and he's still around. He's still doing yeah. stuff. And I'm working with those guys now on other projects. Oh, it's, it's super uh, funny. Back to some of these bands. I wanted to, I did want to tell you because you mentioned ministry. To this day, I saw, I have seen ministry a total of one time because I didn't, I wasn't into electronic and, and dance at the time or industrial or any of that. It's, I'm gaining an appreciation for it now. But at the time, wasn't like I wanted big guitars and, and things. So I saw ministry at Lollapalooza in 92 to this day. Oh, that's probably a good time to see him. It was the loudest band I've ever seen. And they were outdoors and I had to hold my ears <laughs> because they were so freaking loud. We were outdoors on a ski slope. They were trying to bury their electronic bass. Like nobody's business. They're like, we're not an electronic band. Look at us. We got guitars. And we're loud. Exactly. <laughs> Al spent a lot of time trying to bury that electronic uh, world that he was in. It was insane. I mean, I, I I couldn't even tell when one song ended and another began. It was just that. Oh, my God. It was amazing. We opened for him as Lesson 7 probably three times. And it was interesting because they were getting worse and worse, as, in my opinion, <laughs> because they were turning more into a metal band. I'm like, wait, we just left all that shit. Yeah. Like, what's happened to all this good electronic shit? <laughs> sure, you got electronics in it, but like more guitars doesn't bury it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so you mentioned level seven. How did, how did that Lesson that's, seven? Lesson, lesson seven. seven. Sorry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I have it. Because actually, I'm going to tell you this before you say that. This is a, that fucking name is so problematic. <laughs> All the, every decade, everybody's like less than seven. Less song, like like all fucking variants. I'm like, it's okay. It's a terrible name. It's okay, but it's just endured, you know. I just I have it. It's funny because I have it written down once, and then I'll like, and, and this happens in all my notes for everybody. I have I'll abbreviate things, and so it's abbreviated as just L seven. So totally different well, band. L seven came along later. The, the took the name Ex- fuckers. Exactly. We were already there. Come on. Yeah, well, you weren't throwing bloody tampons at people, at least. At least not that I, I don't exactly. think you were. Exactly. I wish we were. <laughs> Damn it. You probably would have made even more headlines than L7 if you did that. <laughs> how did that whole, how did that band get started? How did you, did, how did you meet, well, it's, it's David Wayne Prampin and Wynn Martin, right? Yeah. Okay. So a couple of things happened. So between leaving, like I'd, I'd been in so many like cover bands before then, and we did some original songs and stuff, but I just decided I was getting sick of working in bands okay. that were, were dysfunctional. And so when I started doing electronic music, one of the things I liked about it was the freedom of it was like, it's just me. I can figure it out. Like what I, I you know, like live and die by my own, whatever I make. Right. You know? And so, but I could make it happen. And so also, I was way into electronics and and again just contextualize you know like texas is not like 
absorbing electronic shit at this time right. you know like it's like it's guitar rock and sticks yeah. is big and you know like in fucking i don't know poison and bands like that you know oh, like, ZZ it's top. like just noise yeah zz top well, I, I don't want to kick them you know but like sure like, <laughs> like, that's the fucking thing like they hadn't even done electronic yet yeah you know? and so so it's like kind of the outsider shit and so uh so when I was doing that, I wanted to work by myself. And so I started doing electronic music, which allowed me to do that technologically because MIDI was coming in. And so I could yeah. use, I could use drum machines. I could use synthesis. I could use sequencers and stuff. And this is all kind of new stuff at this point, even though people had been using it since the seventies, it had mainstreamed a little bit more from people like me. And I'm, you know, like I work at a, a crappy record store making $2 an hour or whatever <laughs> the fucking job wage was at the two fifteen, I think it was or something. Right. And so, but you know, I'm buying gear whenever I can. And so I had been from about 86 to about 88. I was doing it pretty seriously. And I had a couple of different guys. I had a different singer come in for lesson seven after I was like, I really want to do this industrial project with a lot of noise and guitars and stuff. And I didn't know what it was going to be yet, but I had a singer come in for my old metal band and it didn't work out so good. And so he went away and then I got this guy to play big industrial drums for me and stuff. And then he ended up dying of heroin oh, overdose. Sadly, uh, Jasper Burns. I love that kid. He wow. was great. He was only in the band for a couple of months, but he was, he was a friend of mine for a long time. But so by the time 88 rolled around, I was really ready to get, I wanted more fill out and I wanted to write better songs. And I knew I couldn't do that by myself. And so I started to, to search out and I'd been working with this guy, David, David Wayne, who also goes by David Starfire now. And so he had been producing my stuff, but we'd just been working together in his home studio. We both had four track recorders. And so we just worked back and forth and he was in a synth pop band. And so I finally just got him to come into the band. It was like, play acoustic guitar, play bass, doing these things, and you can still do your project. And then we, we found this other guy, Wynn Martin, who was in Energy Fools at the time, and still has brought that back to, you know, he does a lot of remixes for us. He's a really good musician. And so I brought those two guys in, and, and we just kind of started to, like, it started to move real fast at that point. you know, like rehearsals to fucking doing shows within like a couple of weeks and then wow. started opening for bands like within a, a, a couple of months. It went, it moved real fast because we were an anomaly, not because we were necessarily good. I ain't going to lie about that. Like we weren't necessarily good, but we were an anomaly, it, you know, like punk funk was big and, and indie rock was big. Like who's do would be the big band, you yeah. know, Minutemen were the big bands in Texas and, and there was a lot of regional bands. And so we were outsiders, but because we were the only band really doing it in this way, we, it just became like open for this band, open for this band, open for that band. So all of a sudden we started getting paired with fans and we started doing a lot of shows and we started like, we were rehearsing live is what we were doing, trying to become good. Okay. And we ended up opening for touring with skinny puppy five months after forming in 1988 and we, we did the vivisect six tour with them oh wow so, 
And now they're on their final <laughs> farewell tour now, aren't they? Truly are. Yeah. And so that tour really inspired me. I actually became vegan and vegetarian at that time and started working on political and animal rights issues and environmental issues from about okay. then. Oh, I don't wow. even political, but I was like, I was, cause that was the whole thing about lesson seven was it's, it's a political mission as much as it was a musical mission, because it was a chance for us to table at events and to talk about issues from the stage, which I right. did a lot like, feminism and animal rights which is like you know like in texas was a hard thing to talk about so so we just did that again not trying to blow our like say like we were awesome but we just because of you know circumstances and things we just got shoved into these things and it was like it just worked out good it was moved and it moved fast so skinny puppy we did that tour came back and then ended up opening for ministry and revolting cox and meet me manifesto and severed heads and i mean literally that list just goes on and on and on like of all those bands like we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors If I just if I said it was like forty bands, I wouldn't even be I wouldn't be lying to you. Swans, we played <laughs> Swans, we Liebach, Klanazymox. I mean, you name them. Every band that toured, we were playing with them. We, we didn't do shit to make it happen. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just named half the discography of, of half, a bunch of my college roommates. <laughs> Of course, right? <laughs> exactly. Like, oh yeah, we're opening for those guys next Friday. Yeah, oh, you know, cop like, shoot cop. Yeah, I know those guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then by the time '92 rolled around, I just laughed. I was fucking sick of the music industry. We toured with Nine Inch Nails by then in 1990. Yeah, I opened for so many bands. We'd done so many tours ourselves. I was so sick of going out for six weeks at a time and coming back. I was raising a family and it was like coming back with the same amount of money or no money and oh. fucking so many people in the industry that were shit bags. We got fucked by the record labels. We got fucked by the management companies, the, the fucking publicity people just because of, of ignorance on our part. And so, so it's just, it was a grind. And I just fucking laughed. I just wow. quit in 92. I walked away from the, so. from the whole industry. Yeah, I totally did. Wow. I just closed the door and said goodbye. Fuck everybody. Man, so. that I was going to ask you about that. You just rolled right into it. So was that when you started doing more activism at that point? Was that what you were focused on? It kind of was. I mean, activism was already happening since about 85. You yeah. know, I've always done political work. And again, I'm like, I don't have the deepest knowledge I'm learning. And music, this is the important thing about music. It helped me to to discover the world. You know, like I want to say this with all sincerity is that more than books, music really helped me discover the world, relationships and the politics of the world and the economies of the world and the just the way we relate to things, I really discovered it through music and the culture industry, not industry, but the culture world. And, and I'm not saying it was necessarily healthy, but it was something that was really important to me. And so when I left, I was like, I was really burned out. I mean, you have to think by that time I was in my mid twenties, I'd started when I was 12. Yeah, that's I'd already true. Been fucking gr- I've been grinding it for a long time without much success, not choosing to be a pop star and bands around me that were shitty were getting $300,000 record deals. Yeah. Even though they'd never recouped that money, they were like $150,000 deals again and again and again. I was like, man, what am I doing? Yeah. You know, like, because I don't want to make that music. It sucks. It truly exactly. sucks. I'm a little more kind now. I'm like, oh, it wasn't so bad, but I just, I was, you know, like, try to come up. You know? Yeah, so, exactly. Anyway, I wasn't jealous. I was just like, I didn't understand it. And I was like, I got to figure out something else. Because I always wanted to use music back then as a stepping off to other things like 
writing and because I'm, I'm a writer i write all the time i've written oh. multiple books we'll talk about that and yeah, stuff. Yeah. yeah i mean i have fucking successful books i mean that, you know, like outside of fucking music i've written books i've toured the country uh, the world for for years wow so that's a whole other thing and so i mean it's just a and so i left and i, I went into the antique business which i'd already been in for a long time and oh, wow. trying to figure out how to make money i left the record store after six years and and uh, just uh I, I opened my first art gallery in 1995 and then my second one in 1996 and started doing that. Oh, awesome. And then activism for serious came around in about 1999. I got really serious and I sold the business in 2001 and, and started working on activism kind of stuff full time. So yeah, man, I'm the most, I'm the most weirdest dude you're going <laughs> to talk to about anybody's <laughs> life. I promise you. I love it though. It's, so, it's fascinating. A lot of fucking eras, man. A lot of eras. So just to back up, I was yeah. in the antique business, right? So this is the weird thing. You're like, I didn't just sell like old rusty shit. I sold $80,000 chairs and $40,000 paintings and fucking, I was filling museums and corporate collections and private collections. Like I was serious about, it. I was discovering people who hadn't been discovered in mid-century modern, whether visual art or their furniture or their design work, blueprints, ex extremely rare stuff, so, because that's the way my brain works. <laughs> you weren't in Boston around 1990 with the Gardner Museum? <laughs> No, okay. no, I sold to the, <laughs> you didn't steal no, that's sold, 200 I million dollars. To, I sold to the Dallas Museum, <laughs> the Fort Worth Museum, the Wilhelm Rhine Museum in Germany, to the um, to MoMA in New York. I sold to High Museum in Atlanta. I sold them collection pieces. I was, you know? I was just watching in a, addition uh, to other shit. I was just, <laughs> I was just watching. What happened at the Gardner Museum? <laughs> oh, did you? I, I was just watching a, the Netflix special. This is a robbery for that the uh, huge art oh, heist. Oh shit! No! Oh my god! No! <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just had to no, make but, sure. But the thing is, I'm not even bragging about this stuff. But it's just like an era. It did good. I was really sick of it, and I really started to hate my clients yeah. because it was like it's mostly wealthy people and uh, wealthy corporations and stuff. And I really yeah. fucking hated them. I wanted to be stable as a, because I grew up working class poor, yeah. and I wanted to be stable, and so I wanted to do these things. And, and I started organizing out of my store, and my business partners hated it. They really did. I was organizing all this political shit out uh -huh. of it, you know, fundraisers and things, and they just didn't like it. They weren't on board with it. And so I was like, all right, let's, I'll get out of it. And I sold my interest in the in the business in in two thousand one moved to Austin and, uh, and then just started working for nonprofits. I, I, I did, uh, I worked on the actions teams a lot. I didn't work for campaigners, but I worked on the actions teams. And, and again, while I'm doing this, so I worked for Greenpeace, Rainforest Action Network, Ruckus Society, three, uh, later 360. And so I'd be paid when the guys paid that you'd see like hanging off the bridge or hanging off of a building with a banner. Yeah. That was me. I was either coordinating it or doing it. Wow. So, so it was that kind of dumb shit. At the same time, <laughs> I was like fighting to the destruction of the, you know, I didn't want them to destroy the natural forest and I didn't, I was sick of factory farming. So I was fighting against those things. And along the way, after 2001, I became listed as a domestic terrorist. And so I couldn't wow. fly many places in the United States. And I mean, I don't know how much this is interesting in a music show, but, but like, it was just part of the landscape of it all. It's and so I fought you, man. fascism. I fought. It's, yeah. And it's, so like, you know, I wanted to know more about you. So it's not just the music. So this is all fascinating to me. 
and and the thing is, I'm not trying to toot my own horn. I don't I don't fucking care anymore. I'm just telling you these are these are just stories now. And so like, so basically, I was hunted by Department of Homeland Security for uh, ten years. Wow. So it became a New York Times article. I was on the front page of the New York Times in 2011. If you want to know, so uh, explains the whole fucking thing in some ways. Wow. And uh, and I was able to translate that into stories. And when 2005 happened, so I was still a domestic terrorist from about 2001 to about 2000, uh, about 2010 or 11, I was, uh, was under investigation and it was hard. I had a team of lawyers. Yeah. I, I say it, I can say it all funny now, but it was really hard time. I can in imagine. 2005, I, t- I took up arms against white supremacists in new Orleans, right after hurricane Katrina. And that really put me on the, on the radar because me and a bunch of black guys were like, you're not killing any more black people in this community. I'll fucking shoot you. And so, so we started an armed defense group. And so all these things ended up. And and then a friend of mine turned into an, was an FBI informant and tried to put me in prison, ended up putting two other friends of mine in prison and about eight or nine friends of mine went into prison. And you're talking about basically for property destruction, you know, basically. And so there was a, um, it's just a, just an interesting time. And, but what happened was I was able to, the, I started this organization in 2005 called the Common Ground Collective after Hurricane Katrina. Right. And we had 350,000 volunteers come through and we wow. started the largest anarchist-inspired project in modern U.S. history. And that's not a bragging wow. statement. That is the fucking truth. We had, at any time, we could have five or 10,000 people on the ground working on anarchist projects stopping the police from murdering people all the way to building healthcare clinics that became full-time clinics, feeding people, gutting houses. We were doing it all, but we were wow. resisting. We weren't just saying, Oh, let's keep our money. And, and, and like, Oh, well, fuck it. I'll say it. Dave Chappelle, Bruce Springsteen, Bonnie Raitt, Michael Moore gave us hundreds of thousands of dollars. Wow. Sean Penn, they came to, I'm talking about a dirty anarchist project that kept the money in a shoebox. Right. They would give us checks. And in fact, in fact, um, Bruce Springsteen's wife, totally, uh, Patty, Patty? Scalifa, yeah, she uh, wrote us about a year after uh, they donated some money. She's like, hey, man, we gave you guys $25,000, and you guys haven't cashed the check. And we're like, oh, we're just saving it. But we had to go look for it. It was in the goddamn shoebox. You know what I mean? It's like Dave, you know, Dave Chappelle. Like it was like these, all these guys. It was like they were they were way into what we were doing, and it wasn't a celebrity fucking event. We were we were people were going through hard, difficult things in a yeah. fucked up situation, and these people said you need money to do this. And we recognize the nonprofit system and the red cross is going to fuck everybody. So we're going to support you in doing it. And so that's what we did. So that's the truth of that. That's incredible. I had a lot of post-traumatic stress from, and it was a very stressful time. And so again, I was terrorist during this time. And this guy was an informant. And so he was informing and causing all these problems. He's a famous guy in his own world in the right wing ecosphere because they love him now. And I'm not even going to mention his name, but it's just interesting that that all happened. And and then by the time the end of it came, I'd I'd written two books out of it about the Katrina experience and about uh, about guns in the United States in a way that had never been explored that became bestsellers. So my first book, Black Flags and Windmills, sold about 15,000 copies. And my second book, Setting Sights, sold about 12,000 copies so far. And my first book, I was able to tour on it for five years, which brings me back to music. So I'm touring around the country and from 2011 to about 2017 and all these people are showing up at my shows. I'm like, I'm, I'm having between 
200 and a thousand people show up. I'm speaking at colleges all over the country. I'm like in Canada and England and Mexico and, and okay. I'm talking, doing all this stuff. And I'm doing 200 events a year. Wow. Talking about ideas of how we organize together and how to, when the state fails and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But all of a sudden kids started asking me like, Hey man, you're in this industrial band. Yes. I was like, what? <laughs> so all these people are talking about this stuff. It's just remnants of stuff because we were on a YouTube video and then, you know, there was some MySpace stuff and there was just some random, there wasn't very much stuff. And lesson seven was gone. Like yeah. we, nobody promoted, everybody went on, you know, <laughs> like to go do other projects and stuff. And right. so I started to see value in it with a, a younger audience. And so I was like, well, maybe there's some value in releasing it. And some people that were bigger musicians, they still are like this guy, soul, who's a rapper and this guy time, who's a rapper who are famous in their worlds. Soul started Anticon Records in 1999. He's worked with everybody. If I just named it, if I went down the list, it's too long to go. Oh, wow. uh, he's just a white rapper who's been around for a long time. And him and this kid, uh, Chris Steele Time, both encouraged me a lot to do music. And, and so that was really the kind of impetus to start. Um, by 2016, Tim Soul uh, is doing a record with DJ Payne One, who worked with Chuck D and Public Enemies, but he has a platinum record with Lil Weezy and, oh, and a bunch of people. And he's like, geez. but they work together, and they they're both anarchists. And they like to do that, and like they do these records that are really political and real good, just yeah. really good. Outside of what DJ Payne One does for himself, and so uh, he was like, "Hey man, do you want a guest on this record?" And I was like, "Oh hell yes, I'd love to guest on a record <laughs> with you. You're my friend. I love you. It's political. Oh my gosh." And so I'm like, all right, man, when am I going to fly up and get in the studio? I'm excited about this. Like, I'm like, oh, man, 2016, man, get in the studio, man. I'll get on the mic. It's going to be awesome. He's like, no, bro. He's like, just record it in your phone. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Wow. He's like, he's like, dude, it's the modern age. So I'm like literally record my my verse in the phone that's so, insane but it was cool because i got to work with soul and dj Payne one and chris Hanna from propaganda all kind of heroes in my world at yeah. that in these times of propaganda from a long time ago and so we all work together on this song and i you know i have a minor part and i'm super happy and it just kind of begins to unfold in that way i start re-releasing my old stuff which leads me to by 2017 start re-releasing my old music and i realized that like lesson seven as a project or corporate uncle or audio assault these three projects i have i don't have any of the music anymore i've given away the tapes the dvds the records i give no fucks when i close the door i say goodbye apparently so yeah i say goodbye to yeah and it was like and so many eras man so many eras (laughs) and so i uh and so i'm like fuck man I only have these five songs. I'm like, but I think we did a lot more than that. And so I I put out on social media. I was like, hey, man, does anybody have my my old music? And people started sending me shit from around the world. Songs I'd forgotten about. Songs I was like, oh, my God, this is a much better version than I have. And just so many demos and things. I'm like, fuck, I can't believe all these people had this stuff. I really appreciate it. We weren't a big band. It was just it meant something to somebody to enough to hang on to it. So all of a sudden I end up with like forty songs. It's taken years to do it. And so yeah. and so I just start releasing that stuff and I'm like, fuck, there's so many other good bands that I was working with that I love. Why don't I release their stuff? And yes. so I was like, Oh shit. Next <laughs> thing I know, it's it's a fucking record label. Man. <laughs> so in between this whole time, the time you left and came back. Did you do anything musically on your own? I mean, did you write any music? Did you do stuff for yourself? Or was it were you just done completely? 
Well, when I left, I was gone for a long time. In about 20, 2002, I started playing guitar. I was like, you know what? I'm going to learn to play guitar. Okay. I'm sitting around a lot of campfires trying to defend forests, so we're out in the woods a lot. And I was yeah. like, fuck it. I'm just going to learn to play guitar. A lot of people are playing guitar. So I did that. And I wrote a few songs then, but it was nothing worth keeping. And I wasn't ever thinking I was going to get back into music. Never, right. never, never Man. thinking I was going to get back into music. Not because I, I was like, it was not an... When I left, I didn't feel unfulfilled, like, oh, man, I better, oh, man, I shouldn't have closed that door. I had never thought that. I was just like, you know what? It was just the time. I did that during this time, and then I did this during this time. And the door's closed. this during this time. You're done. Yeah. Yeah. And I, sometimes it's whole new sets of people, too, along the way, you yeah. know? And it's not because I just like, fuck you, I hate you. It's <laughs> because my bandmates are some of my, the longest, dearest friends I have. The most people I love the most, like literally the most, the, the, uh, the, the guys from those eras. And uh, it's, you know, like, I don't think that about high school or college or early work experiences. I don't fucking look for any of those people. I never do. I don't give a fuck. My high school, I give no fucks. Those, you know, like, I'm sure there's good, there's good people there, but I don't yeah. look for them. Right. You know I mean, so by the time I, uh, by the time I'm doing this, I'm like, even when I started the label, I'm, I was like, Oh, fuck it. I'll just re-release some of this stuff, make it available. Cause I want to listen to it online. And then I was like, Oh, I'll just keep doing this. And then I connected with this guy, David May, who was an old friend of mine from the eighties who had been, who run a record label from the eighties in Dallas from the eighties through the early two thousands before he went to Czechoslovakia to work for this label. Oh, wow. And so he helped me a lot to really build this label. And then that was in 2018. We started working together. I did a 30th anniversary re release of uh, radiation, which was a hit song for lesson seven in the clubs yeah. still is. It's an underground classic. We'd gotten fucked on it. Just like all the bands on that label never made a penny of it. I'm like, Oh my God, fucking people like this song. Fuckhead. Yeah. And it's like, so I, I just re-released it. I was like, fuck it. It's my song. Yeah. I wrote the motherfucker. Fuck you. <laughs> and so I was like, Come at me, man. Lawyers, I don't care. And so we did a 30th anniversary uh, thing. I got all these people to remix it, old and new. And it just kind of started to make me think about it. And Dave was like, oh, we could do this. And so he had this whole label of stuff. So we started reissuing all this old Texas electronic and experimental music. It made me think more and more about it. I was like, I should write a book about this, about Texas electronic experimental music from 1975 to about 2000. Because Texas has reassessed psychedelic rock, which we were core in. Oh, yeah. Heart of punk and blues, but yep. fucking country and singer songwriter stuff. But fucking for some reason, electronic music is just looked at as, as this um, bastard stepchild or yeah. something. And so I was like, well, what if we reassess that? And so that kind of became the impetus for the label and the label being emergency hearts, which is a concept that I developed a long time about something about the passion that drives us inside, okay. whether it's to fight oppression and exploitation to rise up to do that or to create joy in the world. Emergency hearts is the thing that, that, that we, that's the feeling it's before you start thinking about it. Like, Oh, I should do that thing. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I'm doing that thing. Yeah. And so anyway, I started the label with that kind of idea, not knowing what I was going to do. And then David may tragically died in a, a fucking freak accident fire of oh, uh, no. not of his making in a, in 2021. Wow. And so, sorry. It was hard, man. It was a hard time. And I was like, fuck it. I should just stop this. I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, the thing is, I'm not in the music industry. And I hate the industry. That's why I left. I hated the industry so yeah. bad. And all these people are like, you're doing this wrong. You're doing this wrong. But I'm like, maybe not. And I met Mark Stewart along the way. 
And he nice. gave me a lot of, and Mark Stewart of the pop group and stuff. And we yeah. had connected on Facebook and he was like, dude, I like what you're doing. It looks so interesting the way you're trying to talk about this stuff. And so we started talking and he really gave me a lot of encouragement during that time to really do something. And, and, and like, we're like, how can we release something with you? And he wanted to use his social capital and his cachet to help build the label and help introduce me to people. And so he gave me a lot of stuff that I super appreciate. And That's I awesome. connected with Mark Pistol from Consolidated uh, during that time too, because I wanted him to do a remix. And Consolidated were old friends of mine, although Mark wasn't my friend back then. I had met him. We'd played with Consolidated two or three times back in the 80s and early 90s. Okay. But then, um, but Adam Sherburn and I had been friends for a long time because he was uh, the singer of Consolidated because he went on to be in, uh, he went on to uh, do a lot of political stuff. And so he liked my anarchy stuff. And he, we, when I'd go through Portland, he was always there and we'd always talk about stuff and it was good. And so by the, you know, again, that was 2012. So, you know, 10 years later, you know, or whatever it is, eight years later, Mark Pistol and I are working together and I start doing consolidated stuff and I started doing this stuff. And then I'm like, Oh, meet me manifesto. Sure. We'll do, we'll do that. I was like, Oh, Adrian Sherwood. Sure. Let's do this. So I'm working with people that I worked with in the past and the future, just kind of, Again, uh, trying to understand what I'm doing and trying to sort my way through the world. There was no master plan, but I'm like, I wanted to recontextualize the political music work that I had done earlier mm -hmm. with and make it towards the future. Not because I was like living in the past, because I don't actually fucking care about the past. I truly don't even today. I just like the past because I think it gives us moments to move towards the future. And so working with these people were like legendary. Like I contacted Adrian in 1988 to do a remix and he wanted like $4,200. Well, now he works like he does like, I have like 13 remixes from him. not at that price, but I'm just saying like things, things change, right? Yeah. yeah. Like the, the world has changed. I mean, like, and so, so I, I, so the label has become this thing, which is kind of like Smithsonian in its way, which is like, let's reassess electronic experimental music in these ways and talk to these artists who are gone yeah. uh, or not really doing things and then put it in the context of the future. And then the digital world really has shown me that anybody who listens to streaming music doesn't know shit about the old music. And so it's so all true. new to them. I'm not I'm talking about casual listeners, not people who are hardcore right. fans. And so everything is new to them. So an old band from 35 years ago, 40 years ago, 27 years ago, 20 years ago is new to them. And the algorithms treat it the same. And so I was like, once I figured that out in about 2020, I was like, oh my gosh, we can just keep releasing this as new stuff. Yeah. And whereas like, it's like, it's got a shelf life at a record store and they pulled it, the cassette or the CD or whatever. No, it's like, it's still there. And you're like, oh, that's big in Indonesia. That's big in Argentina because they never got to hear it. Right. That's true. <laughs> that's amazing. So, man. So anyway, that's the fucking journey, man. Oh my God, thank you for letting me tell you about that part of it all. <laughs> oh man, it's my pleasure. It's been a fascinating story so far. I'm, and it's Shit. just, it just seems like you you hit a new beginning. So it's it's really, I love it. And, and then you're so energetic about it and so enthusiastic. I think it's it's amazing. And I was listening to see, like Continuum of Time. Yeah. The your first solo release from this year um, of everything and nothing, and it's mm -hmm. has the way you approached writing music changed because of all your experiences. Right. So Lesson Seven is more the dark wave goth industrial project, right? Yeah. Like, it, like it's like the flavor that it's always been because it was that. I mean, like, like you know, like 
we were very, I was, I was very in, inspired by Clan of Zymox a lot. I realized okay. that a lot more now than I did back then. Cause I was like, well, who was it? It was like Ministry and Skinny Puppy. I'm sure they, yes, they did. But it was like, oh no, it's Clan of Zymox. If I listen to Lesson 7 now, I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> and we played, you know, and like just a story, like we played with them in 1990 or 91. And it was like a dream for me. And we got a drummer to play with us. And it was Chris Brenna from Nine Inch Nails. Cause he had quit Nine Inch Nails at that point. Oh. Oh, wow. Moved to Dallas to be with a woman. And so he jammed, he jammed with us for this one song. I mean, this one, uh, this one show with Clan of Zymox, which is like a legendary show in my brain. Yeah. Know? It's 2000 people or whatever it was. <laughs> and so, but yeah, I think that lesson seven was the dark way. And so like the, of everything and nothing album gave me, it was just, it's kind of what I started from 2016. Like who was I working with? Cause I work with a lot of different people and definitely, and I was, I was on Mike Watts show from Pedro. Uh, I don't know if you ever know his show, oh, but yeah, I was yeah. on his show recently and he's like, yes, yeah, genres don't really matter. And I was like, you know, as a young man, I used to think they always mattered. Like you are trying to prove who you are in this genre. Right. And he's like, was that the music industry? And I'm like, probably, you know, but I didn't understand that again when I was young. And then, uh, by the time, but, but, but now I, I'm just like, I want to work with collaborators. I love, and then get the message across whatever that is, whether it's not, it doesn't necessarily mean you're trying to convey something, but just like the feeling, the, right. the sentiment, the, the moment or the politics or whatever it is. And so I just work with people who are just doing cool shit that I just like, you know, right. I listen to, and like I said, Industrial electronic, that's not something that I'm super familiar with, but I really like stuff like Strip Mall. That track is a great it's track. It's a great song. I love it. Yes. So, Angel was the first kid who he's way younger than both of us, and he um, he's been doing stuff for fucking so long. Really, he's a really famous in his world as a cloud cloud rap producer. And I'd heard that track Strip Mall that he had done, and I do this thing as a as a writer now when I collaborate with people that already have songs out. I just said, Hey man, could I do this song? And because I had social capital as an anarchist, because even though you never heard of me, I'm the most famous anarchist in the United States. <laughs> Apparently so. <laughs> Whatever that fucking means. <laughs> and so, um, I just said, Hey man, I'd really like to sing on this. And I hadn't really done anything by that time, by 2018, 2019. And he said, man, I like your writing and stuff. And he'd used one of my talking points in a song called Emergency Heart based on my thematic idea of Emergency Heart. Okay. He's like, man, just sing on it. And just sing on that song in this one 800 star comp constellation and just give it a try. So I just fucking made, I just, it was like my first chance to get back into it. Again, I didn't change his music. I just said, uh, just sang on his song as it was. Wow. But I started to learn that I like to do this one thing, which is take their song title 
and just write something around it. I have oh. no idea. I don't ask them what they are doing. They just have a title for their track, and I just write lyrics around it. Oh wow! And so okay. Strip Mall was one that just came out really good. That's <laughs> that, my head. That's really cool. So with these these collaborations you're doing, are you initiating most of them, or are people coming to you for the most part? It's both. It's different. It just it, there's no most of it. It's just okay. it's always. I have so many songs. I have fucking 40, 50 more songs to release. Wow. I just it's just like they just pile up. So I just do them and then I forget about them for a while. This and then what I but but I'm going to back to Mark Stewart real quick. Yeah. It just he gave me the validation for this because I realized that this is the way he works on stuff. I didn't have anybody. I've got nobody to look at because everybody I work with is either professional musicians or or totally casual about it. Okay. But Mark is, but the way he approaches it and stuff, I'm like, oh, I see that. So some songs I just provide the lyrics for. Some of them we collab on it and we go back and forth for a long time. Some of them they initiate, some I initiate. Some are parts from other songs. I love okay. to cannibalize songs. I love to cannibalize oh, yeah? old and new because old and new is all new, That's which is why Emergency Hearts does a lot of remixes. So. Okay, so, and I, I love Mark Stewart. He's he's such a cool guy. He's just, he was fantastic. Oh, he's great. So, oh, he's so good. He's, he's a fucking hoot, is what he is. He's got a he's got the best laugh too. Holy, crap. he does. <laughs> <laughs> I was li- so true. You know, I saw Tackhead in 1988 in London. I saw Mark Stewart and Mafia, and then Tackhead. And again, my head exploded. Wow. And then I saw Tackhead again two more times, 89, 90. And I'm like, they were so good. Oh, <laughs> so. In going through this song, I think I have a favorite off of your album, Bird Song. that song that is so cool it's definitely it's my favorite track so is that all you or is that a collaboration also that's a collaboration with birth center and birth center is my son uh, milo harkness smith he was a total musician and visual artist into his own world uh and he does he's got birth center has tons of music we release their music too but it's fucking good and i'm not saying that like oh it's my son and he's good no he's a he's a great artist he's way better than i am but we collaborate occasionally he's like you can sing on this one try this one and birdsong was a fun experiment in that and it was and, and it was one of those things again the title was the thing that set the tone for it. I don't know what bird song means. I don't ask him. And I just start making up words and phrases and stuff. And I, and with him, especially, I can just give him a pile of stuff and he'll just take out things. So what you hear wow. is whatever he just chose. I didn't choose any of it. Wow. That is awesome. So, oh, that makes it even better. Yeah, thanks. I'm glad you like that song. He'll like that oh, too. It's, so. it's definitely my favorite. And his music is really good. And all the heads love his music. Just know that all the musicians, musicians, every time they hear his shit, they don't they don't know he's my son. And they're like, Holy fuck, that dude Burst Center is good. What's he doing? Like, how is that? You know? <laughs> it's in the his blood. His approaches man. are good. It's in, it's the- in his blood. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, so I've got another question for you. The the song Emergency Heart, was that before mm-hmm. or after the label started? Mm-hmm. 
came up with the concept of emergency hearts probably in 2008 or nine. It came from a, a phrase that this uh, friend of mine at the time had said at a, at a talk one time. And I asked him later, I was like, hey, what, what does that mean? He's like, I don't even fucking remember saying it. I was like, oh, okay. So I just built this whole concept about, I've written about it many times in many books and stuff, and I'm known for it. And so I hated to commercialize it, but it just seemed like a good place for a good jumping up. Terrible label name, but a great, <laughs> a great... Uh, a great signifier, you know, if you get past that. And so, so, uh, and, and televangel Ian, um, he was the first one, like he, before we had even collaborated, he was like, Hey, could I use one of your talks? Cause that's what uh, people were doing is they were taking my talking things. Cause there's a lot of them on YouTube and stuff. And people were taking phrases out of it and putting it over electronic music and noise music and stuff. Again, wow. people, I don't even know who the fuck they were. And it was cool. I was like, Oh my gosh, there's some value in this thing. Like, yes. again, I'm isolated. <laughs> I'm in this political world that doesn't even know about that. I'm worried about being murdered by fascists, and <laughs> being arrested by the fucking government at any moment. <laughs> moment for for uh you know for my political views and so so i'm like oh this is a beautiful thing and he just took it and he messed up my voice and you know and altered it and stuff but i just love the sentiment of it and so that's how that started you know? oh, okay I, th- I think it's a great phrase i mean it's so it's some it's amazing to me that a phrase that somebody else utters and doesn't even remember can mean so much to somebody else that's true. It's so interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I got him Kevin Danner. I asked him about it actually a couple of different times. I'm like, do you remember saying this in 2000? He's like, man, I got no. It's just something he said off the top of his head. It's amazing. You know? And I can understand that, you know. And it didn't, it wasn't like he had built this whole concept. It was just, a, it's just two words. Yeah. Really. And I like to mash words together, you know. And so I was like, oh my gosh, those are good words together. Yeah. <laughs> and again, so, it, it means something to you and it, you know, it, it made sense to you. Right. And, and you right. Know, wrote a song and then formed a whole, a label around it. It's just. Yeah. But I do this with a lot of stuff. Concrete Age is the same way. My wife <laughs> is some, some idea that she had talked about at one point. Uh, my wife, Ann Hargis, who was part of Mr. and Mrs. Accident, uh, which is on our label. Oh, cool. Long gone band. It was an experimental band in the eighties. And, um, and she, uh, she had said something about concrete age one day and it just resonated with me again. It's just like, as a writer, you pick up these things. I write down stuff all the time. I have yeah. tons of like titles. I have tons of concepts, you know, like and stuff. And so I'm like, Oh, that works good. And so I built this whole thing about this high idea about concrete age that, you know, like out of those phrases. So oh, that's, that's fast. It's just an exercise. So do you, <laughs> it's a process. <laughs> do you have any plans to play any of this stuff live or, and tour at all, or even stay regional and, and play some of it out? Well, no, I'm not really. I don't. I'm not really looking to do that. That's not really my interest or focus these days. Okay. I actually am avoiding the public in a lot of ways. I'm a very well. This is a good podcast person. to do that on. A, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I like doing media. You know, like I, I actually like talking to media more than talking to people, and because I can have um, more security around stuff. I was almost murdered a few times, and like by the police and <laughs> by fascists, and so, so even though like I'm not living in hiding or anything, I still have remnants of that stuff that that affect me, and so um, I don't like to speak in public so much anymore because I don't want to get shot. That makes sense. And so, but I, but that said, like I, you know, I opened for Front Two or Two, which was a bucket list. Uh, show because they wouldn't let us open for them in 1991 when they came through. But I was like, I still wanted, to, and so Lesson Seven ended up opening for them last year, a year ago, 
in wow. October of 2021. And so that was a fun show. I, the two original band guys couldn't come. So I, I got some people, to, uh, I got JG and the robots and T for two, this guy, Jay Gillian to, to perform with me and this woman in this band dissonance. They're both on our label. I got her to sing with me. And so we just did a different show and it was fun. And I did it again last October, but I'm not trying to bring it back. It's not, okay. it's just not something I'm interested in at this moment. Like I'm saying things could change, you know, but I, I really like just doing these things and talking to people about ideas and stuff. And you said you've got so much more in the pipeline. So it I do. Yeah. So lesson seven, we had continuum of time, right? So yeah. that was like a best of, that's like fan favorites of cover songs and one new song. And then there's two more lesson seven albums. One just came out called memories of the future remixes black. came out at the end of uh, December. And that is like remixes of Lesson 7 songs by Clan of Zymox, Meet Me Manifesto, Adrian Sherwood, all, you know, contemporaries and stuff, yeah, and yeah. old and new. That's and awesome. then there's another remixes of Memories of the Futures that's coming out also, Memories of the Futures Red. Again, different sets of people, but same thing. Dead Voices on Air, Clan of Zymox, um, Man, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't, I'm doing terrible pitching, <laughs> but just a lot of, a lot of good people, people that deserve to be their name, Mark Stewart, you know, oh. like, I'm just saying there's a lot of people on it. I'm, I'm sorry. I can't remember everything off the top of my head. I'm not really a pitcher for shit yeah. like that. I just like to talk about things. <laughs> so that finishes out the kind of lesson seven stuff for me. There'll be, okay. there'll be some new lesson seven remixes and things coming out in the future. I still have front Two two is going to do a remix. Oh, nice. I think Clan of Zymox is doing another remix and some other people. And then I did this political industrial project which was a uh, industrial rap uh, called audio assault with a bunch of other good guys some of them were in lesson seven and then we used some other and then some other guys that were with us and that project actually did better than any of our bands back then oh, it was cool. a shining thing that burned out and i still i brought that project back and so we just did a track with uh john wayne was a nazi which was a remake of an old MDC punk rock song, but we made it a hip hop version. And I got Soul, wow. this, uh, these rappers Soul, uh, Mike Crenshaw, and Seema Lee to be on that. I sing on it. Mark Pistol plays guitar. Jason Yawn of Breakfast for Children plays guitar. Chris Dose from Anti Flag is on it. But Audio Salt I brought back as a project. And so I've had have new songs coming out with, with Chuck D and Dell the Funky Homo Sapien as oh, name brands I can drop. But also like punk rock favorites, like Mike Watt's going to be on it. Chris Dose from Anti-Flag will be on another track. You know, like it's just a, it's just an amalgamation. Of, I don't even have, besides putting the songs together, I don't even try to make my vocal parts the biggest parts. I just like putting the shit together. Yeah. And so Audio Assault is going to have an, uh, a compilation album coming out towards the middle of the year. And then I've been doing this noise project off and on called Corporate Uncle. Right, right. Since 1985. And so again, doing the same thing, I'm working with, new artists who are noise and experimental artists and then some famous ones even dead ones uh i i just did a track with coil 
I don't know if you remember Coil. Uh, so even though they're totally dead, they wow. did remixes for Nine Inch Nails. Oh, and okay. They they're they're led they're a musicians musicians for their noise what they do, and so uh, they they're both the guys are dead. But I got permission to use their tracks and incorporate and interpolated them with some noise project that I had wow. from the time. So so their songs are from the '80s, even though they still did songs up until they died in the 2000s. It's 1980s meets 1980s, and then the same with Muslim Gauze. Um, uh, and then I've worked with some newer people like Marisbo, KK Null, who oh, people are still alive doing shit. Yeah. So it's like, it just helps corporate uncle. And that'll be out the end of the year too. Um, oh, before wow. that. And it's not because I, I, I like this shit's been in the works for a few years. It's not like I'm so prolific. It's just that, <laughs> oh, oh yeah, piled up enough songs. I should release that as right. an album. Because we like to, Emergency Hearts, we release a lot of singles. We do. I mean, we have 400 titles. So remember, so for 2019, 2017 when we first released something but really 2019 until now we have almost 400 releases that's wow. more than any minor label and mo- more than many major labels oh for sure. and it's only with a, a crew of four people doing this on the regular oh wow and i'm the only full-time person so, <laughs> so. god that's incredible so, just ambitious for stupid reasons yeah <laughs> <laughs> well i man i've kept you for quite a while here what is the best way for people to find the music and, and listen to your releases and everything that Emergency Hearts is releasing? Well, really, the, the main platforms are emergencyhearts.com, okay. and that's hearts plural, you know, hearts.com, that's our website. I mean, just go there, and it'll lead you to any streaming platform that you are a part of. Uh, and then if you want to buy, you can buy merch on there and stuff. I mean, we have all kinds of merch, you know, stickers, T-shirts, all you know, just usual stuff. Um, but you can also find us on all the streaming platforms, Spotify and all those, uh, and in Bandcamp, too. You know, you can buy merch on Bandcamp, and you can, right. you can find us on Bandcamp. Yeah, so emergencyhearts.com. Okay. And then uh, and you can find us on TikTok and Facebook and all you know all the streaming services. I mean all the all the platforms we have things going on. You all know. the social media nonsense that's going on. Uh, the two guys at the label work on that stuff at all. Like I, I gave up on corporate social media. I actually fucking hate it now. Uh, it was great for microcapitalism and promoting for a while, as you understand. Yeah. But I just got I got so much where like I'm not I'm I've been in media all my life. 45 years I've worked in the media. I've been, I was the first interviewed at fucking 11 years old. I've been interviewed my whole life and everything that I do, I get interviewed. It's interesting. And I'm like, man, it's just a weird fucking thing. But anyway, I just fucking hate, I don't like getting on and promoting shit. What I like is promoting ideas right. and, and our hearts and our minds and doing things. And that's the truth of it. Well, so. you, you've got a ton of music coming out. Are you still, are you working on any new books or is, what else uh, is going to be? Yes, music? I have. Yeah. I had two books come out last year books on my work that i had been doing already i've got a couple of books in the works too i had an art book come out this year called uh concrete age so oh nice oh that's beautiful yeah and so it's just those kind of things and we're doing a we're doing a book with mark spivey of dead voices on air it's his memoir about his life and then so emergency hearts is not just a record label we're actually trying to actually give uh, actually besides the digital streaming i don't really care that much about records 
as I like it because the music is the impact and like yeah. the form that it takes doesn't really matter. So we make bespoke things like cassettes and CDs and things, but I'm really interested in other esoteric things like Mark Stewart wants to make a puzzle and, you know, uh, Steve Marsh of telepathics and a bunch of other projects. He does visual art. So like, I, I like those kinds of, I like thinking about that. And that may be where we're headed more than trying to be exclusive vinyl, exclusive CDs. We have yeah. those things, but what could else could we do? You know? And so I think about it in those ways if people want to support artists i don't think necessarily everybody wants to buy a record they just want to listen to the music and support the artist and so yeah. what how do we do that how do we facilitate that in an environmentally sustainable way ethical way and treating everybody well along the way and and, and when the culture industry is completely collapsed as you know yeah you know like everything's everything is so devalued whether you're an artist a journalist a filmmaker it doesn't matter it's all devalued Oh, absolutely. I know exactly you're what you're talking presenter, about. You know? yeah. Yes. It's real. And so it's trying to figure out instead of complaining about how things have changed, because it used to be that a few people made a lot of money and the rest of us just got fucked. Now there's, now it's like everybody can make a little bit of money or try to or get a little bit of exposure. And so I'm trying to figure out be a spammer or you know, things that you just don't care about. Yeah. And the people on my label and the artists I deal with are all in that same boat. Oh. You know, we're all outsiders interesting thing about a modern day label too is that i don't actually engage with all the artists that we work with sometimes it's through people and it's right. so weird That's so like dell does a ver verse on angelo moore song i don't talk to him at all although it's not like it's not rude or anything like that i can yeah. contact him about stuff but then other people i talk to all day you know yes. it's, it's just interesting <laughs> you know but yeah we work with a lot of hip-hop artists and we got a lot of cool keith we got tracks coming out with him so oh, sweet so anyway there's a bunch there's a bunch time we have a lot of new tracks with him coming out it's really been nice thank you again for having me on i really appreciate it oh but it is honestly it's been my pleasure it's been so much fun to chat with you thank you so much It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 